In the past uh, couple of days, there's been a surprising bit of news that's come out about a pastor who has been influential in my life. Uh, His name is Josh Harris. He's written a number of helpful books. When I was a young Christian, I I read uh, one of his books, or a couple of his books that had uh, an influence on me. He was a previous pastor of a, a very influential church in Maryland. And a couple of weeks ago, it came out that he was divorcing his wife. And then over the weekend, he announced that he has decided to walk away from Christianity. And these sorts of situations are the types of situations that prove problematic for Christianity. Here's why I say that. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Right? These sorts of stories, they, they probably leave you doubting Christianity. I, I would just guess, right? Because you're, you're lead, led to believe that this pastor ought to be an example, and then you realize... He's left his wife, he's abandoned Jesus, he's abandoned his church. Maybe you hear about the pastor caught in immorality or or greed and you decide, I don't really want anything to do with that. It's understandable. If you expect that uh, this Christian, who's supposed to be example, has, has proven himself to be harmful to his own community, then that's going to cause you to question the entire ideology that this person seems to hold. How should the Christian respond to this? Well, let me share that uh, I personally have heard stories like this a number of times. Stories like this, I don't think they provide me with a reason not to believe. I'm not left doubting Christianity I don't feel necessarily betrayed or anything like that by this, this guy. Uh, I don't typically hear these stories and, and walk away doubting Christ. However, my typical response is that I begin to feel uh, a concern for myself. I, I don't know if these sorts of stories affect you in the same way. Maybe you hear stories like this and, and you begin to wonder whether or not you are going to remain faithful to Christ. If if he walked away, who who am I to remain faithful to Jesus? Am I going to turn out just like him? Am I going to leave my family? Am I going to walk away from my wife and walk away from my children? When I hear stories like that, that's, that's the feeling I'm left with. It's a worry for my own heart. But I believe that this passage that we just read and that we're going to study tonight, it addresses these exact fears. As we hear at the very end of the passage, there is a call to look to Christ for strength and for endurance. Jesus is the one who gives us strength. He is the one who gives us perseverance. He is the one who enables us to remain faithful even when the tug of this world begins to pull at our hearts. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So we have to ask, how will Jesus do this for us? How is he going to fulfill this promise? How is he going to sustain us? How is he going to enable us to remain faithful? Well, as we see here, one way that Christ grants us sustaining 
grace is by placing us in the community of the church so that we might strive for holiness together in community. That is the message that we see here. God gives us grace and he sustains us. And one way that he sustains us is through this ordinary mechanism called the local church. This is a passage centered around the grace that we receive through the church and through participating in this church. And this leads us to an important question. What does daily life in the local church actually look like in the first place? What does it look like to be in a healthy local church? What, what does it look like to, to walk daily in a community of Christ followers and seek to pursue Christ? The local church is one of Christ's prescribed mechanisms for remaining faithful to God. Therefore, we need to know what life in the local church ought to look like. Here in our passage about the local church, we see three specific marks about what life in Christ's community looks like. First, we see that as a church, we ought to have a dedication to what I'll call one another ministry. We'll explain that in a moment. Second, we see a devotion to spiritual disciplines. And third, we see a pursuit of personal sanctification. If we are going to understand this passage, we need to recognize the logic here. Jesus will sustain us. He will help us. He will remain faithful to us. And he will enable us to walk faithfully in the congregation of the church. And one way that he will enable us to walk faithfully is by placing us in the congregation of the church. Like I said, the first component of daily life in the local church is that of one another ministry. In order for us to prosper as Christians, we need to engage in one another ministry. When we look at the New Testament and you begin to put together these, these pieces, all of these commands that incorporate this idea of one another, we see this long list of what it looks like to be in the context of community in the local church. You see command after command after command geared towards the local church, calling us to love one another, be patient with one another, serve one another. So here in our passage, we see another uh, grouping of these one another texts. And this is one aspect of what it means to be in a healthy church. One another ministry takes place when the individual members in the church seek the good of every other member of the church. This is really about individuals taking responsibility for one another in the hopes that everyone in the community will be pursuing Christ together, will grow in Christ together. We've pointed this out multiple times now, but remember, every church that is going to be deemed healthy must be filled with individual members who are all simultaneously pursuing maturity. We've seen this multiple times. A healthy church only happens when the individuals within that church seek to grow in Christ as individuals and as they help other people to do the same. A healthy church isn't healthy just because the pastors are there and are teaching good things. A a church is healthy because every individual in the church seeks to grow in Christ. And that's what one another ministry is all about. It's about the individual's members in the church helping one another grow. 
It's about every single person taking ownership in the church's health and vitality. So look at what we see here in these verses. Here we see a a number of different examples of what this type of one another ministry ought to look like. The first aspect is that the members of the church are to show respect to their leaders and to their pastors. Verses 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, let me just state the obvious. It is a bit odd for me to encourage you to respect me, right? I I think you could all understand why that's a little odd for me to do. And yet we have to recognize that the church cannot function unless the congregation has a respect for the pastors and the leaders in that church. The members of a church must have respect for their pastors. If there is no respect between the the members and the church leaders, then that congregation is destined to failure. See, God has structured the church in such a way that he has placed qualified men set apart to lead the church. That's God's intention. That's his plan. That's the way he has prepared his church. He has established this role. He has specifically appointed individuals to lead the church towards godliness. And so with that said, I want to give you some practical insights on how you can respect your leaders, how you can esteem them highly. This is one another ministry happening between the members of the church towards the pastors. And here's one practical way for you to do this. I, I would say that prayer is one way for you to do this. Praying for your pastors is one of the most beneficial things you can do for the health of your church. I personally covet your prayers. My family covets your prayers. I need you to pray for me so that I would have wisdom in order that I might know how to lead this ministry and serve this church. This is my first pastoral position. I've never served in a pastoral position before this. I've only been here two years. And so there are a number of days when I'm just sitting there going, I don't really know what to do. I don't really know how to handle this situation. I'm not really sure I know what I'm doing right now. There are a lot of days when I feel concerned for my family. Am I leading my family well? Am I taking care of them well? Am I protecting them? And so I need your prayers. I would say, Phil, if you're a member here at Golden Hills, Phil desperately needs your prayers. I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with everything that's going on in our church, but Phil Ward, he became the pastor here uh, recently, the senior pastor, and he is following Larry Adams, who served as the senior pastor of this church for over 30 years. And I'm sure that you can imagine the type of pressure Phil feels following in the footsteps of someone who has led this church for decades. People don't like change. (laughs) And sometimes when you are the one who has brought about that change, you are the face of criticism for everyone. Phil needs your prayers. His family needs your prayers. Here's another way in which you might grow in your ability to respect your leaders. I would say ask for counsel and seek to heed counsel. Again, 
God has placed pastors in the church in order to shepherd the church. And so seek counsel from the shepherds that God has placed in your midst. With that said, I want to give some caveats here because sometimes when we think of going to the pastor for advice, it it can feel as though whatever that pastor says... I'm trapped, right? Because I need to do what they say. So we need to find a balance here. Seeking advice, seeking counsel, and and knowing how to heed that counsel. And to that point, I just want to point out that I, I do not see dogmatism here at the church among the pastors. And what I mean by that is I don't hear pastors in our church saying, you need to take my counsel or else you're in sin because you're not taking my counsel, right? In that sort of situation, the pastor is the authority. Take his, take his uh, opinion, and if you don't take his opinion, you are in sin. I don't necessarily hear that very often here, thankfully. Typically, if a pastor tells you, in our church at least, that you are walking in sin, it's not because you're not heeding his own personal opinion. It's because you're not heeding what the scriptures show. If a pastor comes down hard on a specific opinion, at least at our church, I have noticed that typically he is doing so for a good reason. Typically he's doing that because he sees the scriptures leading him to to counsel you in that way. And so, I just encourage you, seek counsel and heed counsel. Now as we continue to discuss one another ministry... I want to point out what we see in verse 14. Here's what we see here. Now we aren't necessarily talking about the members, one another ministry to the pastor. Now we're talking about member to member, one another ministry. Every person in the church has the responsibility to seek the maturity and the growth of every other individual within the church. Look at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. This is one of the most helpful passages when it comes to offering personal counsel or discipleship towards someone else. This is a call to everyday ministry among church members. This is also a call to wisdom. As you help others grow, you need to take account of the type of person you're trying to help grow. Look at what we see here. Look at the different ways in which we are to to use judgment when we minister to others. Paul begins to categorize these different types of people in the church. He points out that there are those who are idle, there are those who are faint-hearted, and there are those who are weak. I don't think this is like an exhaustive list. There's probably other types of people in the church, but he's, he's trying to teach us wisdom here. He points out there are these three different types of people in the church. And look what Paul says. He, he shows us that we need to address these different types of people in different ways. Depending on the individual's attitude or the individual's disposition, we are called to appropriately address them. The idle, they need to be admonished. The faint-hearted need to be encouraged. The weak need help. The ultimate lesson here is that we have this duty to use judgment and to to read situations and apply wisdom while we're doing one another ministry. 
As we minister to others, we need to make sure that we're paying attention to the person we're talking to. We must be able to discern what that person needs and what is going to be good for that person in the moment. So let me just give an example of this. Let's let's just imagine you have two individuals who come to you same day and they're struggling with the same thing. Just let's just say you have two guys that come to you, they're engaged in sexual immorality. Two different guys, same day, both struggling with the same same issue. It might be tempting to think that these two different guys who have committed the same sin and who have come to you on the same day need the same response. That's not always the case. And in fact, I would say typically that's not the case. They both, you might think to yourself, need a firm rebuke, right? They both need me to to smash their computers. They need me to get rid of their smartphones. They need me to just yell at them. That's what these guys need. They're just stubborn, right? They need me to get, get on their case. I mean, maybe that's what they both need. But that's not always the case. You know, we think that because they've done the same thing, they need the same response. We think we need to smash both of their phones. We think that we need to call the girl that they're, they're hooking up with and, and break off the relationship for them. But, you know, to be honest, maybe there's a guy out there who does need that. But it's, it's a jump to say that every single guy, paint with broad brush strokes, need the same exact thing. You see, separate people, typically speaking, need different responses. Maybe one is remorseful when they come to you. Maybe one is unconcerned. Maybe one is troubled and the other is stubborn. Just because they've committed the same action doesn't mean they have the same attitude about the action they committed. And therefore, we can't respond to both of them in the same exact way. Paul is calling us to use wisdom here. But let me also point out, in addition to the fact that there is not a one-size-fits-all ministry plan to every single individual in the world struggling with lust, uh, in addition to that, notice what Paul says. Says, encourage, or he says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So, regardless of the type of person you're talking to, regardless of the attitude they might have or the disposition they might possess, everyone needs your patience. So as we are doing one another ministry with one another, as we are offering rebuke to someone, or as we are, we are calling someone out of their depression and, and trying to come alongside them and, and, and help them through that season, no matter what the situation is, we need to offer tons and tons of patience. You're going to botch one another ministry if you come at it without patience. If you're hoping that this is going to be a quick fix sort of thing, You're wrong. Almost 99 times out of 99 times. It's never a quick fix thing, right? We were talking about this the other day and how uh, typically when we think of sanctification, I was talking to uh, someone about this. When we think of sanctification, we, we like to think of those seasons where we go through this remarkable growth period. You know, maybe you were partying and you were doing all of these outward things, having sex with your girlfriend and partying and and you were stealing from your boss and then you become a Christian and you realize wow I need to stop all of these things and in a matter of months it's like I quit all of those things 
But here's the deal. Even though that seems like a quick fix to the the different issues that were going on, in reality, even in those situations, the heart has not been changed, right? You think of the fact that just because you quit sleeping with your girlfriend doesn't mean your heart is cured of lust. Just because you quit stealing from your boss does not mean that your heart is cured of greed. Even if there seems to be remarkable change on the outward side of things, we need to recognize that the internal side of things take time in order to transform. Verse 15. The final component of one another ministry that we see here is found in verse 15. Here we see that we are to seek the good of others even when they do not deserve it. This message is very simple. Avoid repaying anyone evil for evil, but seek their good. A healthy church is marked by a willingness of the members to forgive other people. Instead of seeking the harm of those who who treat you illy, we are to respond in seeking their good. Remember, this is in line with the example that we see in Christ. Christ demonstrates this very thing for us in the cross. He has demonstrated what it looks like to respond in kindness and in love when other people treat him illy or with ill intent. He responds to evil acts being directed towards him with loving kindness. Even as he was being crucified by the people for whom he came to save, by the way, even as these people for whom Christ has come to save are crucifying him, he is still returning their evil with good. Even in that moment, he is pleading for their case. My God, my God, don't you realize they they do not know what they are doing. Forgive them. The cross itself is a portrait of Christ acting in kindness and mercy for the sake of those who meant him harm. You see, we we show this type of love for others because of the fact that Christ has shown this type of love for us first. He has shown mercy and goodness to every single one of us in this room in response to the evil that we have hurled upon him. Our love, therefore, towards other people ought to be in line with the love that Christ has shown for us. We did not deserve his kindness Your neighbor does not deserve your kindness. And yet Christ is calling us to show kindness in response to evil. Do not repay evil with evil, but repay evil with good. Now, in order for us to grow, in order for us to be sustained in Christ, we need to be engaged in these sorts of one another ministries. But there's more for us to see here. In order for us to grow in the context of the church, we also need to strive to grow in our spiritual disciplines. Remember the context. We are looking at the different ways in which Christ is calling us to conduct our lives in the context of the church. And in all of these things, Christ is going to sustain us. He's going to sustain us to persevere in these things and he's going to sustain us to remain faithful through these things. So we've just seen that we need to be devoted to one another in one another ministry. And now we see that we need to be devoted to spiritual disciplines as a church. Here's what we read. Rejoice always. 
pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Here we have this long string of commandments. And all of these commandments are actually centered around this idea of pursuing spiritual disciplines. So what are spiritual disciplines? A spiritual discipline is some sort of devotion to a practice that will help our own spiritual growth. For example, here's just a short list of different types of spiritual, uh, spiritual disciplines. Worship, reading scripture, praying, fasting. And some of these you can do on your own, but at the same time, you can do most of these in the context of the church. They're not always personal as in the sense that you do them only by yourself. We pray in community, we read in community, we even at times ought to fast in community. So these are different activities or disciplines that we are to practice in order to experience spiritual growth. So, in verse 16, verses 16 through 18, we see this, this first string of commands. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. And in all of these disciplines, we have a common theme in play. We need to have a steady recognition of what God is doing at all times. We rejoice in God at all times. We pray to God unceasingly. We are thankful in all circumstances for what God has done. So notice this modifier that marks all three of these things. All three of these specific disciplines are marked by this idea that these things need to be happening always, in all circumstances, at all times, unceasingly. These are disciplines that ought to be carried out through the course of our lives at all times. This does not mean that we must have worship music cranking, though, like at all times, as we walk around, like you're always walking around with an ear pod in at, at all times because you're listening to worship music. That, that's not really what this is getting at. This does not mean that we never leave like a prayer closet. Like I can't go out because I need to pray unceasingly. Therefore, I need to stay on my knees in my bedroom at all times. No, that's not what he's getting at either. Instead, the, the, the idea here is that our calling uh, is to have a steadfast and a persevering devotion to these disciplines. We should not waver in prayer. We cannot forget the fact that, that God has given us everything to enjoy and therefore we ought to be thankful. We cannot forget who God is and, and stop rejoicing to him at all times. When it comes to this idea of, of doing these sorts of spiritual disciplines at all times, I think we have a really helpful example in the book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah, we see this, we see this in Nehemiah 1 and 2. And this is a great example of persistence in these spiritual disciplines throughout the course of life in everyday sort of situations. So let me just paint the context of what's going on here. Nehemiah is in exile right now. And in chapter 1, at the very start of the book, Nehemiah hears that his city, Jerusalem, has been destroyed. It's been set on fire. The wall has been torn down. And the city is in ruins. He's off in exile, away from his city. And chapter 1 begins with Nehemiah feeling just 
overwhelming, this overwhelming burden for the city of Jerusalem, and he begins to pray for Jerusalem. It's this intense, dedicated prayer. It seems as though he's off on his own, praying fervently to God about what's going on in Jerusalem. And then we get to chapter 2. And now, Nehemiah is just going about his everyday life. He's back to his normal routine. Nehemiah is a cupbearer for the king, which in other words means you are supposed to test the wine to make sure there's no poison on it, offer the king his wine, you're essentially the guinea pig. And uh, Nehemiah is, is the, the king's cupbearer at this point, and the king notices that Nehemiah is sad. And this is what we read next in chapter 2, verse 2. The king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. Just side point. He's afraid because he's serving the king. And so if you're serving the king and you are showing any sort of sadness, that was often, you know, a reason to throw someone into prison. You know, you're supposed to be joyful in the presence of the king, keep the king happy. And so he's very much afraid at this point. And he says to the king, let the king live forever. Why should I, however, not have a, fa- a, a, a face that is sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? And here's Nehemiah's next point. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So notice what's happening here. Nehemiah is actually demonstrating for us what unceasing prayer looks like. I think this is a great example of what unceasing prayer might look like. He's in the presence of the king. And then he's asked this question and he says, you know what, this is my chance. I'm going to try to go back to Jerusalem. I'm going to try to uh, uh, build back our wall and repair the city. But let me pray first before I ask the king if I can go. So I want to ask, what what do you think that moment looked like? Do you think Nehemiah stopped mid conversation and said, one second, kind of went to the corner, got on his knees and began to pray? And stood back up, came back to the king and said, hey, um, can I go back to Jerusalem? No, that's not what happened. He didn't pause the conversation, leave the room, go into his prayer closet and then pray and then return to the king. No, but there's this small phrase, so I prayed to my God and then I spoke to the king. It's just this simultaneous conversation going on between Nehemiah and God. There's this instantaneous moment where, where Nehemiah is looking at God and offering a prayer, offering a request to God, and then going about his day. There's this constant conversation happening, this constant fellowship between Nehemiah and God. You see, a life of constant prayer and, and a life of other spiritual disciplines does not look like you remaining on your knees, in your room for days on end. No, it looks like you being in constant communication with God throughout the course of your day. Nehemiah is a great example of that. Now, as we continue 
we see another way in which the local church ought to promote spiritual disciplines. Here, in verses 19 to 21, we see that the church ought to be devoted to the Word of God. They ought to be dependent on the Spirit. So, again, the emphasis here is on the Word of God. Here's what we read in verses 19 to 21. Do not quench the Spirit... Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Now, at first sight, it might not seem like Paul is talking about a devotion to the Word of God. You're reading this and you're going, I see him talking about quenching the Spirit and see him talking about prophecies. Paul says, avoid quenching the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. So, so what is he even talking about here? What does he mean by quench the spirit? What does he mean by despise prophecies? Let me just point out by saying, just plainly, that quenching the spirit is the equivalent of a, ignoring the clear teachings of Scripture. When you are in a situation and the clear teachings of Scripture come to mind, you know what's bringing that passage to mind. It is the Spirit of God. And when you avoid what God is telling you to do in that moment through his word, through the spirit speaking to you, you are quenching the spirit. If you know that God has said to do something in his word and in the moment the spirit begins to remind you of that thing that you are to do and you blatantly ignore it, in that moment you are quenching the spirit. And this will result in a hardened conscience. It will result in... And you straying into sin. Let me just be blunt. You do not turn out like that pastor that we spoke about at the beginning of the night unless you quench the spirit over and over and over again. The more you ignore what God has to say in his word and through his spirit, the more you will find yourself questioning God's word. The more you will find your mind blurry when you begin to try to think about what God's word means. And I want to point out that the idea of despising prophecies is actually very similar. In order to understand this, we need to understand what what is going on in this passage, though, in the context of the early church. You see, in the early church, especially before the New Testament was formally recognized, prophets would deliver the word of God to the church. And the preaching of God's word was often, not always, but often, it was recognized as prophecy. So the idea of despising prophecy is similar to ignoring something being brought up in a sermon. And just saying, I I don't want anything to do with that. It's calling into question the, the preacher or the prophet in front of you. Just kind of critiquing him and trying to downplay what he is saying. The temptation here is to to shoot down the teaching because you do not like it. It's similar to quenching the Spirit. In both scenarios, you are ignoring what the Word of God says. So instead, Paul says, test what is preached. Don't despise what the prophet is saying, but test it. Clearly, we're looking for a balance here. We do not despise what is being preached. And yet at the same time, we need to test what is being taught. And I think we actually have a great example of this in the book of Acts. 
in chapter 17, in verse 11, we're reading about the church in Berea. And here's what it says about the church in Berea. He says, now the Jews, the Jews here in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So notice what we see here. The Bereans, they hear the word of God, they hear it, and and they receive it with eagerness. So notice, that's the contrast. Receiving it with eagerness versus despising the word of God. But then they test it. They go to the scriptures in order to test what is being preached. And here they're testing what Paul is saying, right? They're testing what the apostle is saying. They're going to the word of God and seeing, I, I know you're this apostle guy, and I know that you, you are esteemed by all of the church. I know the apostles in Jerusalem sent you here, but we're going to test everything you say with the word of God. The ultimate trump card is not, this is what my pastor says. The ultimate trump card is this is what the Bible teaches. A healthy church must be committed to the word of God, first and foremost. A church must be committed to prayer, must be committed to constant worship, constant thanksgiving. A church ought to be devoted to spiritual disciplines. As a church is going to grow in health and vitality, a church needs to be devoted to spiritual disciplines. Notice what we see in verse 22. This is the final aspect, the final mark of what life in a healthy church should look like. Abstain from all forms of evil. Let's put things in perspective. Jesus is giving us a roadmap for how the local church should operate. He is also telling us how he intends to sustain us. And some of the steps that he is showing us are are right here clearly presented to us in this passage. We need to be devoted to one another ministry. We need to be devoted to spiritual disciplines. And now we are seeing that the church, in order for it to pursue healthiness and vitality, the church ought to abstain from every form of evil. So we're not going to spend a ton of time here because this is pretty straightforward, but I do want to point out the catch-all component of these words, all forms of evil, every form of evil, we are to abstain from it. That's what sanctification is all about. There is a constant evaluation of what is taking place in your own heart and in an evaluation that that is to to try to to point out whether or not you're pursuing holiness in that moment. What is going on? When I, when I partake in this action, is this action going to defame God or glorify Him? Is this thing I am pursuing something that is good or is it something that is evil? Is this thing, this, this act that I am partaking in, is it something for which Christ died? We cannot merely evaluate actions like we pointed out earlier. We need to also evaluate the heart. We need to know that there are so many actions that that may look fine and acceptable on the outside but are totally twisted on the inside. We need to recognize that there are actions that may even appear to look exceptional externally but, but happen to be corrupt on an internal level. You know, 
we need to ask the question, do the things in which we participate cause our hearts to go down a path towards evil? Right? There's this constant back and forth between action and heart. Sometimes they're working together. Both of them are pursuing things that are clearly evil. And yet sometimes things are a little more tricky. What is going on on the outside might look totally fine. And yet what is happening on the inside, not so much. And so maybe it's, it's a show that, that might be fine. And yet something about it is causing you to go somewhere in your heart where you need not be. Maybe it's a movie. Maybe it's music. Maybe that, that leads you to a place in your heart where you should not go. Things like social media. Is it wrong to use social media? No. But it's important to evaluate your motives. Why are you posting that thing that you are posting? Why are you putting so much value and worth in how many likes you have? What is going on in your heart in that moment? Why do you like the images that you like? Even when it comes to ministry, like I said, sometimes you can do things that look great on the outside and yet something is happening internally that is actually quite evil. Maybe it's something like worship. You're playing a guitar on stage. Your goal is to bring glory to God and yet you crave all of the eyes on you more than you crave all of the eyes being turned towards Christ. Maybe it's serving. You like the image that you put out about yourself by serving. You like other people seeing how much you are willing to sacrifice your time. You, you take pride, an unhealthy pride in what you are doing. It might be public prayer. It might be any sort of thing, really. It could be anything could look totally fine it could look positive even it could look horribly but but in any of these situations what matters is the heart and in this sense we need to recognize that sanctification is hard work it's not easy abstaining from every form of evil it's something that does not come naturally because our hearts have the tendency to warp things things and manipulate things going on externally. You know what's funny is Josh Harris wrote a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye and it's all about purity and it's all about relationships and yet a week ago he's announcing he's divorcing his wife. You can go on the road and do all of these events about marriage and the importance of purity and the importance of relationships and yet something in your heart and even in that moment is going on that is actually a pursuit of evil. And so when we think about sanctification and we think about this idea of avoiding all forms of evil, we need to be persistent and consistent as we evaluate what is going on within us. We need to take a steady dose of self-reflection. We need to be constantly evaluating what is going on within our hearts. And like I said, this is not easy. This is hard work which is why we need help. We cannot do this on our own. We cannot pursue this type of vigilance against our sin and this type of pursuit of holiness unless God enables our efforts, which brings us back to the final benediction that we read at the beginning. 
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who, who, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. As we pointed out at the beginning, Paul is emphasizing that we ought to be dependent on God because God is the one who ultimately enables our sanctification. We need to foster this sort of dependence on God as we seek to grow in our holiness. I mean, notice the language here in these verses. May God himself sanctify you. He's the one who's going to do it. May your spirit be kept. Again, be kept by who? By God. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So God is calling us to these different actions. He's calling us to pursue holiness in all of these varieties of ways by pursuing one another ministry, by by pursuing spiritual disciplines, by pursuing sanctification. But in all of these things, ultimately it is God who is enabling these things to happen. Like Paul says in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Seems like all the emphasis is on you, right? Well, his next line is, for it is God who works in you. God is the one who empowers all of our efforts. That does not diminish the fact that we have a will and we need to pursue this, this sort of obedience. But we have to constantly recognize our dependence on Christ. That's the message of the gospel. This utter dependence on Christ for all things. You see, in Jesus, when we think of the gospel, we typically only think of the first moment of the gospel, justification, which takes place the moment we come to Christ. This is the moment that that Jesus, through our faith in his name, he makes us pure and holy so that we might stand before God uncondemned. Jesus, in that moment, he declares us guilt-free. If you could think of a court of law sort of scenario, he does that through the work of of the cross. We no longer need to worry about condemnation. We no longer need to worry about the effects of our sin because because God is going to freely accept us into our midst. He has declared us righteous in his sight. Jesus has taken upon himself the punishment that we deserve. And sometimes we stop there. We say that is grace in its entirety. And yet the message of the gospel continues. Jesus does not stop there. His grace continues to sustain us. His grace enables us to stay faithful to him. As we sang earlier, he will hold us fast. It's his doing. It's part of the gospel. It's part of what he does for us through Christ. You see, at the end of the day, the church belongs to Jesus. The church belongs to Jesus. And let me assure you, he cares much more about the holiness of the church than even you do. Even even I. He cares much more about the holiness. And therefore, we can trust in him. We can depend on him in order to sanctify us, in order to make us holy. So let's trust in him to do what only he can do. To preserve us and enable us until the day when he returns. 
Christ's name. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, we are so thankful for the fact that you are a God who saves, not only from the eternal consequences of sin, but you, you sanctify us from sin in the present age, right now. And so we pray that as we engage in the community of the church, we pray that you would help us to pursue holiness together with your help. Father, we we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.